Welcome back to the War Horse Podcast, episode 19, January 20th slash 21st. The website is goldengoatguild.net, Golden Goat Guild on Instagram. Check out the shirts, grab you some stickers. Everybody's happy. I wanted to remind you guys up front that the Golden Goat Guild and Winkler Knives collaboration is ongoing. There are still slots. We're waiting till they're all filled. Um, Funds received thus far are segregated and vaulted and will remain in possession until we can send the whole thing over to Mr. Winkler in beautiful and interesting uh, North Carolina. So I know that there are dudes out there that are interested that have yet to um, drop their deposit or there is an option to purchase the whole thing um, outright if that's what you prefer to do. doesn't matter to me. The deposits uh, is enough to to begin production. Okay, so that's that. It's all on the website. It's all in the Instagram. There's still time. Jump on it. I have for you in this last episode devoted, not entirely, but at least thematically to practicalities that you may not, you know, may not have occurred to you as you um, have waded into the morass that is the collapsing collapse, super collapse, the ultimate eschatological experience that um, may be the Kali Yuga, may, may not be the Kali Yuga, may be the apocalypse, may not be the apocalypse may be a slow grinding descent stepwise spiraling down the toilet bowl into second and for certain in in various you know distinct regions of the country third world status my sense has always been that certain pockets of the United States as we know it now will remain livable. Um, I visited second world. I've brushed up against third world. Not the most worldly guy. However, I... It's impossible 
to not notice that at least, you know, maybe what defines the second world, I'm not familiar with NATO or whoever makes these fucking definitions, but um, I think second world is, is sort of third world and first world combined. And then in, in the case of the United States right now, it's probably going to be something undefinable, right? There's probably going to be enclaves, gated communities, gated regions even, and these will be surrounded by or interspersed among um, third world shantytown status. You can see it all up and down the west coast. I can see it here in the southwest. It's not nearly as prevalent yet. You have to kind of not seek it, but you need to get away from the center of the major cities here. Anyway, um, we've sought in this, as we said, um, Bologna, Roberto Bologna-esque chapter of the, the audio entirely extemporaneous podcast slash novel that is The War Horse to twist our minds back to certain practicalities that generally go unnoticed. Hopefully this was evident along the way. We're going to spend some time here rounding it up before moving into the next, and not final, but um, conclusive, you know, sort of episode for this chapter, if you will. And Roberto Bolaño's novel, 2666, 2666. It was, I don't remember, 600, 800, 900 pages. I read it. I've read several of his novels. I have to admit that I don't entirely understand why Roberto Bolaño's writing, and not all of it, but Savage Detectives, which is his other, I think, monster one, and uh, this one, 2666. Despite their massive size, I, I experienced a pull. There is a propulsion in the writing that drags you through what is really not the most exciting narrative that you're going to run into or even close to it. 2666 is an experience. And if you're if you are an eater of novels like I am, I would definitely put it on the list. What you have is a lot of allusions to conspiracy, a lot of allusions to uh, like revisionist history ideas veiled so well that 
all of those East Coast bougie publishing industry liberals who whose skirts flew over their heads when Bolaño came to town and when he hit the scene, if you will. Um, they never had a clue. And they still don't. I've never seen anybody note. I mean, even though he makes it actually kind of obvious. Like, he signposts it towards the end of this novel in question and makes it clear kind of what what he's doing if if you know the material. They don't know the material, you know? They never have. Because this is, you know, alternative points of view. So what he does is he he has his beginning section, his middle, and his end, and the beginning and the end are tied together fairly seamlessly. Like I say, this revisionist stuff, the conspiracy aspect, is mostly illusion. A few... I mean, there's symbolism aplenty, but the point here is the middle section is literally nothing but 200 or so pages of reports on the Machiadora killings. He never explicitly, he makes it clear, but it's, it's not like reportage. It's not Concerned, you know, with the social, economic realities of this Juarez, El Paso region. Whereas I understand it, this was an early phase in the Ross Perot sucking out, hollowing out of America. Where shit tons of textile operations simply moved right over the border. Business-wise, of course, this makes sense. Shipping, receiving, taxes, labor, all these things are addressed. If you've not been to El Paso and Juarez, I'll describe it a little bit. I have been. I am... Not, you know, intimately familiar with the city at all. But it's a, it's a fucking dreamland. And it is a nexus of nothing short of absolute um, demonic NPC dreamlike combinations of you know death and wealth and cowboys fake cowboys you know people who dress like cowboys McCarthy famously lived there for like 25 years or something the border trilogy of course speaks to a lot of this sort of stuff Um, when Billy Parham and John Grady Cole cross that river from from the United States into Juarez in in that era 40s 50s the bifurcation of reality if you will existed then it did and it existed 
while McCarthy was there in the modern era studying this region and soaking it up, right? Studying, sure, he reads everything massively. But he gets out and he walks. He gets on a horse. He takes trips. He crosses that border probably hundreds of times. He probably gets loaded on both sides. And he writes what is one of the very few, you know, modern masterpieces of of literature in the Border Trilogy, which you've not read it, it which if you have not read it, I would my suggestion were you to ask for it would be to purchase the hardcover edition which has all three books in one and then get yourself a paperback copy of each and go through the whole thing I've gone through the whole thing in like reading it visually as opposed to audiobooks probably pushing ten times easy I think the last time I lost count around seven and it does not measure up I mean it does measure up to Blood Meridian it's the in my opinion, the only of his works who, which does. Some people cite Sutri. I, I don't. I think it was a different writer. It's still an incredible work. But with these two works, we're talking about something that is um, truly extraordinary. And while all sorts of people have sought to mimic and understand McCarthy's style, the thinking, very, very few have, have even come close. And part of this is, in part, anyway, to complete this uh, detour here, his immersion in the role of a writer, you know, being the writer. And I think we'll have a little bit more to say about this um, towards the end of this segment. When we talk about the idea of the writer and a certain idea that I will share with you that's applicable elsewhere. So anyway, back to, you know, Juarez and El Paso. You have then and now this strange dreamland. And uh, The Crossing, for example, the second book in the trilogy, Borderlands are oftentimes symbolic of, you know, psychic borders. Physical borders will stand in for something like that. And psychic in these terms may very well mean, you know, order and chaos, good and evil. Um, McCarthy refers later to this idea of mercantile ethics in his body of work. I believe that's in... uh, no country for old men. Certainly, this arbitrary line in the dirt and um, the financial and political machinations that seek to keep this artificiality in place are part and parcel of of the dream, if you will. Whether that dream is an actual dream or whether that dream, if you want to think of it as a symbolic, metaphorical statement 
or you want to think of it in terms of the dream within the dream. It's up to you. I would add that um, at the end of Cities on the Plain, which of course itself the title of that third book in the trilogy, is an obvious reference to you know the the cities on the plain in the Bible that were worshiping Peor Baal and Moloch and these other demonic entities. When you start to consider the activities of the cartel and say you juxtapose these against things like um, the Bolshevik and communist horrors in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, the, the massive just bloodletting rivers I'm, I understand that these, you know, there's certain areas where these operations took place that are still referred to as the Bloodlands. That would be kind of an interesting, um, maybe not a title for a book, but a subtitle. Maybe just an offhand reference here or there. I'm a big fan of the offhand reference. I'm a big fan as a writer of dropping these bits and pieces in. And I don't believe that you need to know what they are. I think that through the, con- the quantum mechanism that is writing, it's imparted. And the more receptive you are to it, if you are in a master's hands, you know, you should be receptive. Why else are you reading? If Often we do need to read and we're not in a master's hands because it's informative. I believe in fiction, we should seek masters out first. But plenty of time to do whatever we want generally speaking and we have here in the cities on the plain a moment that stands out in all of literature in my opinion you've made it through almost three books you've made it through the story of John Grady Cole you've made it through the story of Billy Parham You've made it through the story of their relationship, where they come together in the third book. I mean, by this time, you've crossed that border with with John Grady Cole and Rollins and Blevins, and then with Billy Parham and his brother Boyd and various campesinos and peasants and a whole menagerie of characters. You have, as a reader, with McCarthy in inarguably a master's hands of what is a quantum medium. This is not, this is what the ancients believed. This is one of the ideas that was totally lost. The pure, absolute power of narrative and story and it's also beyond argument that the novel is the successor to uh, you know myth to Greek tragedy to oral history to the epic the novel in my opinion is among the greatest achievements of mankind. I'm going to try and take a detour and remember to come back to Cities on the Plain.
and the end moment. Because in the end moment, we have what to me is probably, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess I would stand with this, is the defining McCarthy explication, the moment where he puts himself, his worldview on the line, and he takes his sweet time doing it, and I'm sure that he had, he probably spent the better part of a year fighting a squad, uh, you know, a revolving squad of editors and agents, what have you, in New York to get that thing in for us. So that's kind of the detour in itself is You know, as a younger man, um, and you start to hear when America still, yeah, the, the rot was there. Things were moving under the carpet in the 1980s, 70s, 60s. Fuck, you can, you can go back all the way to, you know, the start of the country if you want. But we had this kind of modern, pretty industrial sense of stability in the 80s growing up. I did. Um, it was not ideal. Feminism was well entrenched. You you really did need, unless you were making you know two hundred grand a year, which was not standard executive pay at that time. I mean, it was more like a hundred, hundred and fifty maybe. You needed two salaries to be middle class. But when I was growing up and I would hear about illiteracy and, you know, what a tragedy it was, it was, I mean, I don't know. I probably knew some illiterate people, but they probably hid it well. I spent a lot of time outside of the fairly affluent, very safe, very well-educated. I believe my parents chose that, you know, particular school district because it was super high-achieving, etc. So... Illiteracy was not in any way something that was even relatable. And you would hear these like desperate pleas um, citing facts such as I just relayed here. That reading, even if it's just a children's book, a novel, um, like a, you know, a even Harry Potter I I don't think Harry Potter is in any way great literature um, but just the ability to read and gain access to this quantum experience you would hear in typical sort of bleeding heart liberal give me some money sorts of terms that these people's lives were impoverished etc society would suffer etc and this is all very true and this is an example where the bleeding heart and the noble if you will that is extant in what we still fucking erroneously and stupidly refer to as the right wing or the traditional maybe a better word here the heroic isn't isn't really a piece of the liberal, progressive, even enlightenment 
conception of things. Insofar as we follow, follow it out along the way from its philosophical roots, let's say. Because, of course, in the Enlightenment era, you did have heroes. And we have had heroes of the mind, of art, all the way, you know, in this six, four hundred year march towards, I guess, you know, sort of the um, culmination of this particular worldview, that you and I have front row seats to be entertained by, I suppose, if we, if we would like to, you know, be um, flippant about it. Anyway, there's, there's a truth to that that didn't really dawn on me until I myself became a writer. And then I wondered, well, why the fuck did I do this? Because when I began, there was a notion that, a naive notion. I mean, I could have, the internet when I began was not anything what it is now. I could have sought voices out, but there would have been no way to confirm or deny the value they're, they're in. When you do get started, everyone tells you things like, you know, you're better not, you're better off not to start at all, but if you do, go the distance. Or if you pick up the pen, the typewriter, what have you, do it for yourself. Don't do it for the money because you'll only be disappointed. And at the same time, you're aware, right, of this golden era uh, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, a whole entourage, a whole retinue of writers that are that don't even come to mind for me now, but all made really good livings by sending, you know, a little dispatch from Europe or a short story, maybe you know, three or four or five a year. And this was certainly appealing to me. And the idea more appealing, because I'm not the most social guy. I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll sit at the bar. Or at least there was a time in my life when I would. And, you know, philosophize and intellectualize and get loaded and stay up till 6 a.m., wake up in a puddle of my own puke with what appears to be flour cake dough around my nostrils and you know what I mean I'm joking am I you decide so there was an naivete for sure but there was also an act of theft that happened in this in this period of time say between 1994 for whatever, it's probably sooner, and whatever, 2010. Argue about the dates, they're pretty much irrelevant. But there was a true shutting down of, you know, these voices. You hear there was this thing called the Passage Prize recently. Um, pretty interesting, you know. I'm, I'm interested in seeing what comes of it in terms of voices and uh, topics and 
the short stories and the nonfiction that was submitted. I'm curious to see, but at this time, pre-millennium, and then you know, in the decade after, there still appeared to be a window. And you know, where I was going a second ago was to say, I think that a lot of people who are finding themselves in places like applying or submitting their materials to something like the Passage Prize are former disillusioned lefty types, humanity, liberal arts types who fucking finally realized like, holy shit, this is, this has nothing at all to do. Cause you, I personally know people who sort of bounce their heads against this idea. Like, well, you really, you really need me to have a female character. All right. Well, you know, I love women. I'll, I'll do this. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, for the experience. Okay, now you need a transgender character. Huh, well, I don't know. That might be a little out of my experience, but maybe it's part of this ride, you know? Maybe. I know people who did this personally, bounced their heads off the fucking wall, wrote novels about transgender people, thinking, you know, yeah, was there a part of this? Like, how else do I get published? Yeah, but also maybe this is where the road leads, because to be a master, in my opinion, not necessarily the most humble opinion, but I've, I've made no, no real claims to that title anyway, requires what we referred to earlier here with McCarthy, an immersion. You're going to have to go for the ride. And we can talk about that. We could do an episode on that alone. David Mamet is the one who finally got through to me on this. And David Mamet's an exceptional character. I don't give a shit about his strange politics or whatever else about him. Um, Sorry, probably bumped the mic. I have benefited from this man greatly. And yes, I did run into him once in a a jujitsu studio. A very, very strange dreamlike moment that still kind of haunts me. But aside in an aside, dream within a dream. Perhaps what I'm driving to in this particular detour is to say that none of this has really changed. The immersion process is still required. The quantum value inherent to going on this ride and producing a work of art, whether that's an epic album, you know, one of the just very, very few films that is worth a shit. Um, and that, those standards for worth a shit are just reaching terminal velocity. Yet, you have things like Deadwood, season one of True Detective. Not on the same cat, you know, not on the same level as Deadwood in any way, but outstanding shit. Um, We could go through a list, you know, and some, arguably, a lot of the best work, even though, you know, I would, you know, and I know in the past, whatever, 10 years, it's gotten, it's gotten closed down as well. The Wire is completely overrated. I guess I'd be hard-pressed to come up with a few. But there are a few, right, that, that sneak through. It's 
fidget wo hendai so jumping back to this offering you know almost a short story within a novel like the grand inquisitor from dostoevsky um almost in the same sense as bolaño taking two, three hundred pages out of the fucking middle of his um, his tour de force, you know, his masterpiece, the one that really put him on the map and probably is still feeding his kids right now. You know, I'm just going to devote this to very dry um, reports. Like, they're written as sort of police or um, shitty reportage reports, you know, like news reports, what have you, about individual and mass graves and murders, all related to this period of time on the border, which is ongoing to some degree still now, but had reached a sort of uh, freakish level of murder, Spanning from like late 90s in, into beyond the millennium a little bit, but it seems to have been related in, in a, a metaphysical way, a spiritual way, let's say, to the, you know, it's almost indistinguishable in some sense from because these women are being brutally murdered and raped and beheaded and chopped in 12 pieces and strewn around the street and hung from fucking overpasses and what have you, stuffed into dumpsters, stuffed into 55-gallon or 55 gallon drums and, you know, stacked up 15 fucking high, whatever, just the absolute most diabolical, um, heinous shit that you can think of, it was going on, and it's going on as well with the cartels all through that era. And, of course, still is ongoing now, right? Fucking now. Mass graves, tens, up to the hundreds of thousands of people strewn across that landscape. I'm sure you guys have watched the videos. I've watched the videos. Chainsaws to people's heads, flaying them alive, cutting their balls off, stuffing them in their fucking mouths electrocuting their nuts. The chainsaw one was the worst for me, but anyway, Bolaño takes his time out and just gives you one after another after another as if he is risking or tempting, let's say, tempting the establishment, tempting these latte-drinking, close-minded graduates of Sarah Lawrence and probably, you know, some sort of publishing seminar at Yale to say nothing of all the other ways that they soiled themselves to achieve this this lifestyle of sitting in some high rise and having the influence and here's this guy rolling it rolling the dice saying this is the novel This is the fucking novel. I'm going to get you into this sort of international, almost spy-like intrigue that's woven up with the 
you know, academe and um, publishing, actually, as I recall, it's going to be touch with noir, but it's going to be written, you know, it's, it's accessible to the female reader. It's not just pure blood and gore up front or fucking tough guy shit or whatever. And then he hits you with these 200 pages, one after another, after another, after another, till you are, you can't help but multiple times in this 200 pages, just lay it down and say, what the fuck is going on here? And what he must have had to give up um, to sell those women. It's almost all women, okay? 85, 90%, and the rest are gay. Um, is that an exaggeration? Only by a hair. There are probably a handful of straight white males in the global big publishing apparatus. Not, you know, executives aside, yeah, there are a few here and there, but even, you know, that, what is it, six at this point, or is it down to four or five? I don't know. Monster media corporations. So I always had to respect him for that, and I always will. Um, and I'm not, you know, in any way saying, making a parallel here with this podcast. I mean, fuck. I've eschewed all the shit, and I think that was the way to go the whole time. But, um,. I just wanted to mention this for your edification, perhaps, if you weren't aware of this, and where this idea for grinding out 10 episodes of this podcast came from. So moving back quickly to close this out to our moment at the end of McCarthy's Cities on the Plane, where he has his character, his hero, um, who is a tragic character, is not... Uh, you know, a Christ figure. Christ figure has been lost by this time. He's the man who's going on. And we find him very late in life. In like the realism, the sort of uh, cutting realism, if you will, that not in the strict academic sense, but that defines a lot of McCarthy's work. He describes... Parham as having done some like Hollywood cowboy work in the interim between I guess you know the, the 50s and presumably I guess it's probably in the, in the 80s maybe the very early 90s if we're to try and place this moment somewhere in the southwest not too far from where I'm at probably you have this old beaten down basically you know nearing he's been an itinerant cowboy his heart was broken what he wanted to do with his life, what he was raised to do, the trade that was passed on to him by his father. All of this shit is fucking scoured clean. There's no, you know, Yellowstone. There's no sequined jeans and um, Ryan fucking Bingham. I mean, if this guy was not, is not a... uh, I don't say that he's devised, but he was plucked up, you know, based on marketing statistics. It sure as hell was not based on talent. I understand he's he has some ranching experience. Fantastic. You know, in my experience, modern ranchers living right now will forego or or look away or avoid 
the lack of talent, the lack of heart, just based on the fact, well, the guy ropes some calves. Big fucking deal. Did Buck Owens rope any fucking cows? Did Hank Williams, for that matter, ever even ride a fucking horse? I mean, I bet he fell off a few. Anyway, so that's Billy Parham. The no shit. And... I can't even begin to describe it, so I'm not going to try. There's no, it's not possible. You have to experience it, just like with the Grand Inquisitor, um, just like with, uh, you know, Huey Long and Robert Penn Warren and all the President's Men, just like Al Swearingen, you know. You can describe this guy. It doesn't matter. Go read the book. Go read it 10, 15, 30 times. All I can say in any type of effort at a summary is that it's McCarthy dealing with the absolute fact of uncertainty the the uncertainty that we really live in not the uncertainty of political upheaval not the uncertainty of supply lines i mean the existential metaphysical spiritual uncertainty that we have with regard to the dream and the dreamer Later on, this is, this is proven, in my opinion, when McCarthy pens his, I guess, solid, single nonfiction piece, The Kikul Problem or something like that. It's easily Google. I'll put it in the notes if I remember. The notes are becoming difficult, but um, you guys deserve them. So I should do it you know, more on the fly. That would make it easier. Anyway, it's McCarthy talking about the subconscious and his point of view. And, of course, he does not come down necessarily real hard. He makes a stab at it. He's an old man, you know. He knows we expect something. And what he offers is sublime. Um, But it's not even close to what he offers you at the end of Cities on the Plane. So, speaking of the dream and the dreamer, um, this is going to be, you know, a bit of a short first segment. We're at 41 minutes. We're going to get a little bit into, um, you know, sort of a recap of in terms of practicality. And then we will go into some other stuff in the subscribers hour. Criminal purpose, of course. Weaponry. Precise and sober application of violence. Maybe a story or two. The one thing, you know, that I can refer you... There's like several things, I guess. I won't sell myself too short, but... The warrior's way, as I've presented it, is um, unapologetically abstract. That's my version of it. That's my take of it. I've I've sought to provide a few um, references or other options that, if you guys choose to, you know, start dipping your toe into the water, um, you know, that'll be a way. And maybe I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to say anything other than. The level of abstraction there, if it doesn't hit you right off, you know, it may be because it's not palatable yet. And, um, however, 
beyond that, you know, and intimately related, essential to the warrior's way has been this discussion of breath work. We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about fitness. We've talked about violence. We've talked about all sorts of things to set the tone for what I hope is, you know, a long run at this, at this uh, podcast. But at the end of this practicality episode, with the introduction that we've just attempted to lay out for you, the center jewel of which being the dream and the dreamer, Breathwork is where all this goes down. Yes, I've taken enormous quantities of hallucinogens in all sorts of ritualistic and um, non-ritualistic manner, always with a very serious tone. And I've read, you know, truckloads of books, and I've attended rituals, and I have been baptized, chrismated into what I believe is the absolute closest thing that we have to the truth, you know, an experience of it. I'm not questioning the validity of the church at all when I put that little qualifier caveat in there. I am saying that even the Bible says no man can look at the face of God, etc. And the church itself says we're soaked in mystery. Gregory of Nyssa. Only wonder knows anything. Okay. Well, one thing we do know that wonder may have very well provided us and that science has substantiated bigly in uh, particularly the last five years, really. Um, Because we're at the kind of dawn of you know breath work um insofar as it's going to be something it's going to be a cultural phenomena that stays that has legs maybe like yoga or something it'd probably go way 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 beyond yoga but you can never quite pull the two apart so this is an effort to string together a few particular beads, you know. Right now, what we're facing is the mold. If you don't know the mold, go back into the archive. The mold is the not entirely um, non-physical mesh of words, of indoctrination, of experience, of behavioral patterns, of ancestral memories, of blood memories, of psychological operations, of the twisted feedback that we have participated in, etc. There's a lot to it. But right now, we are facing uh, the collective mold. And we live in a, you know, quite literally now at this point, um, not to overuse the word literally, but a madhouse. In Oregon, to take one example, you used to have up through, I believe, the early 80s. I could be a little bit wrong. 
but I think that's right. We had state hospitals for the mentally ill. And we will take another detour quickly to say that my opinion of mental illness is that it is probably ultimately actually spiritual and physical. And the whole thing about a chemical imbalance and a brain imbalance is, yeah, there might fucking be that, but that was not the cause. The cause is going to be found, in my opinion, to be certain vitamin nutrition, uh, excuse me, you know, nutritional deficiencies and how, here again, we have this, I'm pointing at this nexus, you know, with the mold and with mental illness itself, with madness, with art, with all of these things at this portal, at the borderland where we need to go, where everything's really happening. Nothing's happening at fucking Planet Fitness. Nothing's happening at authentic Mexican food or Target or DC in the White House or any fucking thing else. What's happening is internal to us. And we can lock and load, and, and I do. Fucking, I just ran an errand today related to kinetic considerations the um, precise application of defensive violence toward my people, you know, for my people. I just did that. I'm about to go do, you know, I'm about to devote two hours to training my mind and body after this podcast to continue this effort. I do it every fucking day. I've taken, I believe, five days off in the past seven or eight, uh, I'd have, I don't know, back to about June, I believe I've taken, so that's seven months roughly, five days off. Seven days a week, that's my standard. That's the standard that I hold myself to. So don't get me wrong. This is not about, you know, we live in a simulation. This is not about like you can just simply drop some acid and do a little breath work and we'll just fucking manifest, you know, a peaceful resolve to all this. Not in the slightest. What we're saying is, is that materialism, the enlightenment, what have you, all wants that outcome. That's to their benefit. They're going to run it all over and we will be, you know, as the Inkless blog recently pointed out, we will, or as Jay Dyer has, has discussed, you know, recently as well, Jacques Attali, we will be made into something much worse than was described in Brave New World. We will be these sort of human receivers, cells in a giant internet network of surveillance with control of the human spirit as the goal and constant, you know, degradation of that soul as basically the means. So... What breathwork does is it's the one thing that you have, the one lever that you have access to, to get to that portal, to start controlling the traffic at that portal, to start shutting certain entities down. It has been pointed out to me that the Jesus prayer, certain Buddhist, excuse me, Buddhist prayers, a lot of mantras, many, many that are probably lost to the fucking dust, 
all adhere to similar types of box breathing patterns and result in precisely exact brain, heart, you know, respiratory activity that breath work will provide. So this is not to say, well, it's not to say either one. It's not to say, well, just go into church and, and say the, the fucking Jesus prayer forever and that's all you got to do. I had an Orthodox priest the other day say to me, you got to do everything. And the Orthodox priests or whoever you are looking towards that give you some sort of other type of answer are evidencing the old truism, pride goeth before the fall, in my opinion. Breathwork is the one lever that the conscious mind has to the unconscious. Yes, ritual, hierophany, these things are related. I don't think you can approach these if you have dysfunctional breathing. I think that's how big it is. I think that you can heal mental illness through breathwork. You can absolutely, for certain, I am a living example of it, heal certain physical ailments through breathwork. Because these ailments are oftentimes, excuse me, oftentimes brought about through mental activity, anxiety, fear, avoidance, what have you. Brian McKenzie is now scrubbing his Instagram, which I understand, but it's too late. You know, the cat, the cat is out of the bag. And all of our addictions, all of our destructive behavior patterns, whether they are related to not training, whether they are related to relationships, whether it's food, whether it's drugs, alcohol, um, even, you know, working out too much, whatever you want to throw in there, anorexia, bulimia, male fucking dysmorphia, whatever, throw them all on. That's what I'm saying. All of this boils down to a relationship with the trauma loop. Okay, so I said we're living in a madhouse. I said that the mad have been turned amongst us. And this has brought down that standard by which we look at what's normal. You know, it's become, as they say, normative practice to see people wandering down the street, speaking to themselves. I saw one in the gym the other day and nobody would make eye contact. Nobody would discuss this among themselves. This was a madman roaming through a large gym, doing pirouettes and evidencing this crazy sort of super flamboyant gay with super um, aggressive posturing while speaking to himself. This went on for a better part of an hour. The switch from avoidant behavior to patterns of healthy engagement is only possible through I, you know, a cadre of leaders basically using interior work, breath work to preserve themselves against the collective chaos, this madhouse, the madness of the mold. The mold is like well spilled out of the sanitarium and is now insinuated itself into maybe I would hesitate to say the fibers of 
all of commerce, all of politics, all of interpersonal relationships. Many of us instinctively close the door on this. And this is probably why we're having this discussion, you know, at this increasingly bizarre point in time. Can we really help others, quote, come down? I call it come down, you know, because what happens is your trauma loop, and you have one. We've established this. I have one. George fucking Bush has one. Brad Pitt has one. The leader, the lead singer of the Black Angels has one. Your mother has one. You're not going to find anybody who doesn't have one. It may be... You know, the healthiest person you can find may damn near look like Buddha at this point, but on the scale with Buddha, let's be honest. Way, way down the line. And there is a feedback mechanism in play. As I understand it, you know, trauma-based mind control is sort of what we're dealing with. And it always has been. And it's well established in my research that all of these lines going from Colonel Aquino to Charles Manson to the Tuskegee experiment to the weird business with the CIA and LSD and aliens all of those lines which if you're not aware do uh, converge on a certain man I forget his name they called him Captain Trips I want to say Albert Hoffman but I know that's not right that's a good thing to put in the notes isn't it Captain Trips the original Captain Trips not Jerry Garcia, who later, isn't that odd that they were so bound up with all of these um, characters running this incredibly difficult, um, you know, substance to manufacture, one degree of separation away from all different types of spooky entities. For another, you know, the details for another episode, maybe we can get Jay on... Mr. J. Dyer, who I'm referring to, to give us the QRD there, but the mold results from trauma combined with indoctrination, which I, you know, I, could, I think that it would be fair to term that trauma-based mind control. The interior mechanism in the trauma loop. This is interior. It's a little disturbance that kicks off (laughs) fight or flight. And this becomes the response, the dissociation from what you need to engage in. We're now living in a state where the posturing, you know, whether that's in urban culture or whether it's in feminine cowgirl culture, you know, or Uh, feminist, you know, sort of, it's becoming mainstream, independent even of, you know, otherwise sort of tough cowgirls, where you have a posturing 
that stands as a acceptable, you know, quote acceptable, quote legitimized form of being, form of communication. And we know that if we square this to the capital R reality, um, where, sorry, but violence is golden. And this is not a reality. This is a absolute construct. As if on cue, we have a 45, maybe 50-year-old woman who just gets out of her car with a crop top, yoga pants, a silver purse, bleached hair, doing every, combining zebra stripes here and there, strutting her ass up to her yoga class as if the world were made for her. The world was not made for her. Men in the trauma loop largely is a coincidence that it was timed with the you know mass mechanized horrors of world wars one and two no it's not it's fucking not is it you know we know oh well they never talked about it well plenty of vets come back now and talk about it and they seem to be doing a hell of a lot better they're much more um well adapted they still have if not the same ability to apply violence that they had in war an improved ability so fucking stop with this shit just stop well he never talked about it not made him tough what the fuck do you know about it you just got off the goddamn combine and you just got out of the fucking factory your life's falling apart you're half an alcoholic and you have one friend who fucking probably stab you in the back and fuck your wife anyway what the fuck do you know about it you don't know shit trauma loop is present and the way that we come to find a baseline with it is through breath work okay this is all established we've done this for you know 10 15 20 episodes what we've not talked about yet is when does this translate over do i just become buddha at some point you do not you probably never become buddha or jesus you probably never become an ascended master i might i'm joking you might i don't fucking know but The next step is to deploy breath work when and right before you're, quote, triggered. They stole this word. It's a good word. Don't let the fucking memes and the other thing, maybe we can come up with another word, but don't let them abscond with something so valuable. Why do you think they fucking did it? You really think that it's just a thing that was totally made up? No, you don't think at all. You didn't think about this. I did, and I'm providing this now to say that when you find yourself, and if you can't find yourself, you should create a scenario for yourself as Jordan Petersonian, the Mr. Peanut Butterson, makes clear dealing with phobias is rather simply done. Exposure by gradients, backing off to a safe place, doing it again. Okay, we're talking about severe examples. But when you have gone into this fight or flight mode and it's unnecessary, when you are having, and when is it necessary? Well, if you are being chased by a fucking tiger, it's probably necessary. 
if you're being chased by a squad of former fucking uh, Bulgarian SF slash NATO UN blue hats and you got two rounds left in a revolver, you know, it might be time to shit your pants. It's not time to shit your pants now. It's not time to shit your pants when you're having a tough talk with your spouse or your brother about the Manorbund or your child who you are understandably distraught that his central nervous system has been teed off by this culture. This is the mechanism. This discussion is revolving around the mechanism that we have pre-balloon going up and we have after the balloon going up. Whether it goes up or not, whether it goes up in some way that we think it will go up or not is fucking irrelevant to this discussion. And I know for a fact that, you know, this podcast is going to reach a very limited number of people. But I have to trust God that it's going to reach or Mackenzie will reach or somebody else will reach those people who are receptive to this package. And, you know, if my communication skills fail, that they will dig in and ask for more. They will attend to these resources you know, that are being provided. This trauma loop, pardon me, (coughs) it's inside of you. But your behavior is outside of you, right? You're acting it out. You're engaged with the world. You're screaming. You're crying. You're You're frustrated. You're distraught. You're wired. You're all keyed up. Whatever you, however you want to term it. We normalize it. We accept it in people. We accept what's called stonewalling. You know, we accept this disengagement. We accept it as, you know, laconic. And um, it was embodied on fucking silver screen by Clint Eastwood. It must be a good... Well, sure. If you are in a saloon and a dude is going to draw down on you, by all fucking means, be cold as ice also that you know you need to not be surrounded by any law enforcement you need to be in um, a sort of peer-to-peer environment you need to know how many people are outside and inside your family better not be there on and on and on and on conflict resolution and an intimate familiarity with your actual fear based baselines is going to save lives Will a sub-one-second draw save lives? Fuck yes, it will save lives. We have a lot of work to do. And all the beauty of it is that all of this work is of a piece. None of it is contradictory. On the warrior's way, we don't have contradictions, right? So if you have a contradiction, it's interior to you. And where I would point you to start pulling it apart is your avoidance because Mackenzie is right when he said that all of this comes down to avoidance the posturing I referred to a moment ago refers to a type of avoidance it's avoiding the responsibility for in this case this you know um, sequined cowgirl if you will to accept reality to accept the consequences of her Eve-like behavior which the state enables which the white knight enables, which 
the female bartender who serves her her next drink and points to the bouncer to fucking whip one guy's ass for another because this bitch caused some fucking issues. There's the thing. Hopefully, you know, I I know for a fact that there are no um, sequin cowgirls, what have you, listening to this podcast. You may not even know the type I'm referring to, but there, you certainly know some type of this. And there are ma- there's absolutely the male version, 100%. You want to go? You want to go? You want to go? I just want to fucking go out the door and not listen to your shit anymore. That's what I probably want. Or, like the Green Beret, maybe I want to just wait outside your car and kick the living shit out of you then when there's no other fucking complications. But either way, I don't want to be sucked in to the web of the trauma loop. I don't want to be sucked in to the tentacles of the mold. And this fight is internal. We don't have, right now anyway, badges. We don't have these sorts of, you know, shortcuts. And I don't think that they serve us in the long run anyway. What I think serves us is dueling. Dueling. D-U-E-L-I-N-G. Not in the form that we took it. Not in, you know, one guy stands 50 yards down and I stand... Yeah, I mean, that would be a fun thing to train for. But it's going to be pretty obvious what you are now selecting for in terms of um, future stock. You're going to be selecting for the fastest draw. You are now no longer selecting for intelligence, interpersonal skill. Are you even selecting for strength? It's very dangerous what you choose. We'll go into this, you know, in the next chapter of this podcast. We will have a guest on who I think will melt your mind as he melted mine on, on these lines. And we'll, you know, tidy it up as we do and, and thread it in here and there. But violence is, and, and again, the ju- judicious, sober, precise application and skill in applying that violence is, tan- is essential, paramount. Um, getting in a brawl, for no fucking reason other than proving a point for whatever a girl or some idiotic shit is so far away from the warrior's way that I, you know, it's not even worth speaking to further. So, dialing it back to make this point, right? Whatever that edge is, you're going to find familiarity with it through breath work. And through breath work, you will eventually have an opportunity, I hope. Um, I, I hope that for all of us, that we have like a practice opportunity or 10 or 15 or whatever it takes. Huberman Lab says the three weeks to a routine thing is bullshit. That you can fast forward this. And I, I know this, I believe this to be true and I did before. That you can actually learn something the first time. It takes certain conditions um, and if you need to do it again it's not a big deal but it's not that you cannot drop a thing right like this right like fucking that 
this is part of the victimhood culture. You know, you're going to need this giant fucking support group. It's going to take you 12 years, seven years of counseling. It might take you 12 years of yoga and breath work and, uh, you know, training in weapons and the simplification of your diet in all respects, the diet that goes into your ears, the diet, you know, um, that goes into your mouth, obviously, what you put in front of your eyes. I'm referring here, of course, to like shitty music, porn, fucking stupid movies, stupid television, stupid internet, all of that. Yeah, it might take you a while to um, comb all that out, like the lice, that the lousy shit that it is. But to continue in your in your perseveration, you know, is weak. And if you know a thing is wrong, it's possible to simply drop it. I don't care if that's heroin. I don't care if that's a relationship. I don't care if that's a 20-year pattern of, you know, destructive behavior that's due entirely to some breath dysfunction that itself was due entirely to some misapplied coping mechanism largely unconscious or and or indoctrinated you know to be acceptable through this uh, twisted quote culture and you know the context in which we live so keep this in mind I think this is the reality I have had cause to either be forced to to or otherwise drop a thing and never, ever, ever look back. And it is 100% possible. And it's not even like you need to go to the ends of the earth or kill yourself to do it. It's that you don't want to and you believe, and sometimes, don't get me wrong, this is not a psych, you know, this is not like a, a psychiatric lecture of, you know, absolute moral and practical authority, it's to say that there, this option exists. I've done other things, dropped other habits that took me weeks or took me years even. So it's just to say that the spectrum proceeds past three weeks in both directions. All right, so... We know that we live, you know, in a situation where man is basically shorn of his sort of individual judgment um, on where to place violence, on where to, whether you want to say that's defending himself or, or whatever, you know, sometimes offense is defense, depending on how you look at it. As human beings in tribes, in manor buns, and etc. We've always gone outside the wire and done hits, if you will, because we knew that it was the only way that this was going to work for us. Otherwise, we can sit here in our indefensible position and wait to be fucking run over, right? Obvious. What may not be obvious is that the corollary to man, and I mean men, being shorn of their individual right to apply violence the police force, you probably know this from LaFond and other places, is very recent. And as well, abortion is very recent. The so-called right to life or the right to take 
yet born life. It was a transfer of this violence. A sort of universal equalizing mechanism uh, was in play here where the state yanked it out of one side and applied it in another. And I'm not saying that this is in any way, you know, the sum total. But if you believe in demons and you believe in human life and you are the least bit fucking honest of when human life begins, or if you, you know, watch five seconds of some of these James O'Keefe videos or listen to the stories or etc., and you want to say that it's not demonic, you want to say that this is, oh, well, what would you really say? Playing with the fucking half-dismembered body of an unborn baby. Is that uncouth? Is that poor taste? Fuck you. This is way, way, way beyond. Not even, I can't even engage with that level of argument seriously. And I shouldn't be asked to. The only reason that we are engaging with this sort of shit is because the balance was fucking flipped. How does this relate to breath work? I'll get there. Hopefully we're clear on this point. You as a man are not able to make this choice, but it's a woman's choice. Do you see the relationship? Put it on metaphysical terms. Put it on the scales of justice, you know, as a platonic entity that we have made statues of. And tell me I'm fucking wrong. I wonder if Jocko would like this podcast. What do you guys think? I wonder if Joe Rogan would allow this sort of stuff on his podcast. I wonder. I'm joking, of course. This relates to breath work in in this way. I've said before that you're going to have to do some exploration of your feelings. And what you're going to find is shame. And what you're going to find is shame because you are not able to be yourself. You can find ways around it and that's the best of, that's what we're doing right now. But there is a truth and there is a false and there is a right and a wrong. And until these scales that we refer to are placed back in balance, we have to be smart. We are put out as sheep among wolves and we have to be as wise as serpents meek as doves, right? You know it. However, nowhere in there does the voice of God tell us to be avoidant. We have to confront all of this stuff down there, dredge it up like lava, form canals, psychic canals to harness this shit and move it forward. When I mean you're going to have to deal with your feelings of shame and insecurity, it's not because you're a shameful, insecure person and you, you know, you're carting some bad shit around. It relates, yes, in a, universal, in a universal sense to the fact that we're all fallen, we all have work to do. But it relates more particularly and precisely to the facts of our times. You cannot do this type of work 
if you cannot do breath work. Period. You will suffer PTSD, as I have. You will suffer hypervigilance. You will suffer bouts of anxiety. And you will put these things off, as we've mentioned before, these little signs and symptoms that you're headed for some sort of crisis, whether that's two weeks or 25 years from now, it does not matter. Endurance in this regard, in avoidance, is not a fucking virtue. It's simply not. What is the virtue I think that we need is courage and then endurance in going the distance in finding the baseline, in comprehending all these, what to me, to me seem to be very easily understood. I'm not the most mechanical guy in the world at all, but I've managed to grasp this. So any gearheads out there, you know, are likely way ahead of me, I hope. So what happens? What happens is you hyperventilate at a low, shallow rate. You do not breathe normally and expansively into your lungs, and this creates further loops in your body that reinforce the dumping, the constant sort of drip of cortisol, adrenaline, and the dysregulation of all your other very carefully balanced, precisely, exquisitely, delicately balanced hormones. And then this becomes normalized. And then this, you know, we become weak. We become soft. We give in a little bit here or there. We find that life is tedious. We find that we are unhappy. We find that we have to shore up all of our avoidance mechanisms in order to keep going in this false endurance. And this is all manageable. It's the tragic part of this. How many people have blown their fucking brains out or blown, you know, killed, murdered their families or done other incredibly destructive shit, uh, destroyed marriages, destroyed the lives of their children, their friends, their families? Do you not think that that's the point of all this? Do you not think that that's the point of trauma-based mind control? It absolutely is. That's the expedient, you know, mercantile version. We do it for them. And then we do it in such a way that they make money off of it the entire time. Over here, over there, in the healthcare, in the psychiatric, what have you. The cancellations, the censorship and whatnot is just getting going. All of this will reach out to, you know, breathwork type of people or naturopaths or what have you. It already has and it will continue. So we've detailed you know, how to do this. We've put out resources, experts. I have a thing on my website. You can consult with me. We can do it, you know, in a uh, non-podcast infotainment, calm and collected, systematic way. It's fine. But if you take absolutely nothing from anything that ever goes down in this podcast, this is the most important thing. And... We'll wind it up here. I think the points have been made. I'll take a quick perusal of my notes. 
I think we hit it. And I think that we will withhold, you know, the idea of the writer and whatnot for subscribers. So, I'm going to go work out. You're going to hopefully go do some breath work and DM me if you have any questions. Hopefully, you will visit the goldengoatguild.net website and pick yourself up some shirts. You can also support me and my family by going to, uh, what is it, Peregrine Precision dot my shopify and you can buy the ultimate memento mori you can get in on the winkler knives collaboration more and definitely like um much bigger collaborations are incoming moves are being made whether you're making them or not i hope you are i'm doing this as i say to provide a substantial and viable income stream to support my family. And I'm doing that by providing you the value that I can. And I hope that you have found it valuable. I hope that you will share this with your friends and I hope that your friends will DM me if they don't get it. So yeah, maybe they have to subscribe, pay five bucks and listen to all those past podcasts and get the bigger picture. But we're moving on, and um, we're moving into the Diogelos phase, the chapter of dialogue. This chapter might be 25 chapters. I'm not entirely sure yet. We're going to focus on it. We're going to bring in outside expertise, expertise that may criticize my point of view or your, criti- or your point of view. Um, you are certainly welcome to criticize all points of view. But it's going to be um, precisely done. And I hope you understand by now that there is a method to the madness. This is the idea of the writer. The writing never ends. The writing never started. And the power of it cannot be contained. And whether we have to do it orally or through fucking sign language or we get to continue writing novels that we can revisit over and over and over and over like I have to do with McCarthy's stuff or Conrad's stuff or whoever that's what we're going to do so thank you for listening I really do appreciate it I hope that you found some value here as I say DMs are open take care subscribers I will be back with you as always very soon